Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics, infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how are you doing? I am good, Will. How are you? Honestly, I'm feeling a little down today. Babylon got shut out at the Oscars, more or less. I think the Babylon Hive will be vindicated someday. To borrow a phrase from another popular movie this year, last year, Babylon, I see you. After all we did, (laughs) after all we did for your consideration (laughs) campaign, can't believe they didn't listen to that podcast. (laughs) Okay, Will, so we are like four weeks away from your book launch. How can people get their hands on your book? Yes, so the book is called Trust the Plan, QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America. It is coming out February 21st, and as you said, this marks the, we are now four weeks away. So really, the countdown is on. Pre-orders are super important, so if you think you're interested in the book, you might as well pre-order it. It's pretty wild. I was just talking with someone who read the book yesterday, and there's a lot of pretty crazy aspects of it. There's crime, there's murder, there's a trip to an alleged QAnon cult compound in the desert that I managed to survive. So there will be a lot in there for Fever Dreams readers. If you want to pre-order Trust the Plan, it is available at all fine online booksellers or believe it, your neighborhood bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all kinds of places, uh, bookshop. So yeah, I hope folks will check it out. And as we get closer to the date, I think we're going to do an episode right when the book comes out, really breaking down the book. This kind of stuff would not be possible without Fever Dreams listeners and people who have enjoyed the kind of work I do here. And so I hope folks will get a chance to read it. I am legitimately so excited to read this book. And I lie about reading all my friends' books. I'm like, man, that was awesome. I just read the conclusions. No, Will, I am so stoked for this book. It's going to be a banger. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. So Kelly, a few weeks ago, we lost Diamond of Diamond and Silk. And over the weekend, we got to look at what her memorial service looked like. And I guess going into this, I expected this to be kind of a pretty straightforward memorial service. I did not expect it to be live streamed on Rumble and to feature Donald Trump in a stadium meant for 2,500 people. What happened here with the Diamond Memorial? Yeah, right. So this wasn't your typical wake. It was kind of like a memorial slash Trump campaign event. You've never seen too many funerals held in an auditorium, stadium, that kind of thing. But you know what? She is remembered as she lived, right? No. So Diamond sort of the front woman of the diamond and silk duo. She passed away recently. There was some mystery around her death. People speculated that it was from COVID. Doesn't appear to have been. But this is one of those weird memorials where I think a little news was broken or a little discourse was shaken up because Silk, while remembering her friend and business partner, went on a bit of a tangent about COVID vaccines. She says, instead of asking if Americans are vaxxed or 
unvaxxed, the real question to ask is, are Americans being poisoned? And then she goes on with a conspiracy theory about the vaccine. Now, what's kind of weird is it seems like she was suggesting Diamond was poisoned by a COVID vaccine, but this duo were notoriously anti-vaxxers. So, I mean, first of all, people don't get poisoned from the COVID vaccine. Second of all, I don't suspect the diamond actually did get the shot so who knows doesn't matter so kelly there's actually a very sort of fascinating twist here that has emerged since the memorial so and i want to key in here because she doesn't quite say well i guess she does i was about to say she doesn't say the vaccine but she says instead of asking if americans are vaxxed or unvaxxed the question is are americans being poisoned and first of all you got to keep in mind right that two seats away is donald trump mr operation warp speed the guy who's like i did the vaccine so she's saying hey you killed my sister so and she also says they are dropping dead suddenly she said suddenly a lot in this speech fever dreams listeners may remember that the big covid vaccine is killing people quasi documentary on the right is called died suddenly so this is kind of a code word so i and many others tweeted well if diamond who is an outspoken critic of the vaccine if she supposedly died of the vaccine how does that make any sense well in fact i think silk has come out and clarified this on twitter that she's reaching deep into the sort of anti-vaccine lore where it's not just that the vaccine kills you but it's that if you are around someone who has been vaccinated even if you are yourself not vaccinated basically vaccinated people shed the protein spikes exactly thank you for rescuing me there yeah the protein (laughs) spikes the bad stuff that supposedly will kill you like the clots or whatever they're kind of shooting that out and the clots are airborne now not covid the fibrous things you see them floating through the air all the time just surrounding me like a fine mist (laughs) exactly this was like a big kind of thing at the height of the pandemic where i think they wanted to because there was a sense of unvaccinated people being shut out of places and so they wanted to turn the tables and say well actually it is the vaccinated people who are filthy and disease carrying so that's what silk is drawing on it's very strange though overall and the other thing is like i hate to kind of get into this about diamond's health but Silk is making this out to be like this sudden, she had no health issues, it has to be the vaccine that killed her. Well, we know that Diamond was hospitalized back in November, that she disappeared for a month, was off their show for a month in December. So obviously, there were some health issues leading up to this. I guess just overall, I'm very surprised that Silk chose to cast it as a vaccine thing at all, because she was going on to, oh, my sister didn't die of COVID, which according to the death certificate the AP got, is accurate, that she supposedly died of heart disease from chronic high blood pressure. But it It's an odd move, I think, on Silk's part, even sort of by the standards of that community. Yeah, it definitely is weird. It's not the normal memorial speech you typically hear, but it actually has sort of, it it might go on to affect some kind of policy. Right after those remarks, Marjorie Taylor Greene quote tweeted a video of Silk saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene says, I demand an immediate investigation into COVID vaccines and the dramatic increase of people dying suddenly. Now, just absolute asterisks here. What dramatic increase outside of ongoing COVID deaths? There's no actual indication of this. And she said this can no longer be ignored. It's not political. So, okay, we've got a woman who dies of heart disease. We have a stump speech at her memorial service. Which, by the way, Donald Trump was clearly insanely mad with how long it took because the service started, I remember it being at three and I had it in my calendar, but unfortunately I missed it until it was like six. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll watch the replay of the service. And I turned it on and Trump still hadn't talked. I mean, it was like three and a half hours. And so Trump gets up there and he says, oh, I was told this was going to be 20 minutes, (laughs) but now it's been three hours. Well, what do you make of that? (laughs) 
Listen, the man has no attention span at all. I mean, if it's not his three hour stump speech during a campaign rally, he doesn't want to hear it. He's got like no internal monologue. I think he just sits there and seeds that anybody else is getting attention. But we should actually talk about his remarks there because they were, I mean, just the weird cherry on top of a weird memorial service. So he gets up there, he's riffing, honoring Diamond's life, but kind of like maybe accidentally throwing some shade at Silk. He goes up there, he goes, I thought I knew him both. I didn't. I knew Diamond, but I didn't know Silk at all. I just learned about Silk. You're fantastic. I just learned about Silk. It's like they're a package deal. And how could he just learn about Silk? They've appeared at his rallies and stuff. Like, did you just think this woman was named Diamond? And then (laughs) it's crazy. This woman named Diamond. You see her, it's almost like two places at once. Don't know how she gets around like that. (laughs) I didn't know about Silk. Oh, it is kind of like the famous Ruth Bader Ginsburg Trump learns about her dying meme, where he's like, (laughs) This is the first time hearing of it. There's a silk. And so the other aspect of what I thought was interesting, we've kind of talked here. So Diamond was sort of the main part of the act. I mean, Silk's main role was saying like, yes, Diamond, tell him what's up. And Diamond would do most of the monologues. So just from my perspective as an observer of this industry, I was wondering what's next for Silk. We know within hours of her sister's death that Roger Stone said, Silk, let's do a podcast together. A little tacky, I think. So people have been wondering what's going to happen to Silk. And Silk did this. It was interesting to me that she sort of addressed it in the speech. She said they brought Diamond's shoes on stage and she said, these are big shoes and only diamond could fill them i'm not going to try to fill her shoes i'm not going to try to be my sister i don't know it was just like i I felt like there was a lot being thrown out at this memorial the final thing i would add is that this was held in fayetteville north carolina a place i visited for a trump rally interesting town and this was at a very large venue for a memorial it was a 2500 person arena and i thought that's a lot. Are there that many people who are going to go to this thing for three and a half hours, even to see Donald Trump? And the answer was no, not really, because I don't mean to cast aspersions on Diamond now, but it is more about kind of, I think, the plan of like Diamond and Silk as a media property. And 150 people showed up, 2,500 seats. So that's roughly 5% of the seats filled. Not great. And especially interesting when you consider that, according to Silk, Donald Trump was paying for the whole thing. Listen, you don't want to be the urban legend about somebody, no one showing up to your funeral and some strangers signing the guest book. Obviously, 150, that's a good turnout, but you should probably plan for the attendance that you're going to receive. So when I die, I don't want anybody booking out MetLife, just a normal, maybe 3,000 capacity funeral parlor, I think is what I would would want. Give me the Javits Center. <laughs> so Kelly, speaking of how you would like to be eulogized, hopefully 100 years in the future, Mike Lindell of My Pillow fame was also there. I think he had some compliments for Diamond that you really liked. Yeah. So Mike Lindell, he hosted Diamond and Silk's show after they were kind of ousted from Fox. And yeah, he had some high praise for Diamond. He called her one of, quote, God's handpicked leaders for the battle between good and evil. Listen, it's certainly a kind thing to say about somebody. It does remind me that Diamond and Silk were very much part of this really hard right Christian faction that believes that all this QAnon language, they are literally fighting black and white good and evil battle. And Mike Lindell believes that Diamond was on the front line of that. So good for her. Yeah, being a handpicked leader for the battle between good and evil. And it's like, well, yeah, she had a show on frankspeech.com. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> it is interesting. We'll see what becomes of Silk. I think it's been notable sort of seeing the right wing media react to all this. Okay, Kelly, there is a lot of turmoil in the world of sexy and or quippy candies. <laughs> 
The world of M&Ms is in chaos after the anti-woke movement has turned on them for putting the green M&M in sneakers instead of heels. So people may have seen some headlines about this, but you really sort of dived into the history of the rights war on M&M spokes candies. Catch us up to speed. Yeah. So listen, we're kind of in the doldrums between Halloween and Valentine's Day. Not a lot going on in M&M's world, except... This is when the candy industry looks at itself, <laughs> looks inward, thinks about what it wants out of the new year. Absolutely. We have to get 20% less sexy, I think is what the M&M's brand said. No. So, okay. M&M's, right? Little circular candies. They've anthropomorphized them as these little spokes M&M's that go on TV and have some hijinks. They're driving a car or whatever. I don't know. It's like there's like an idiot M&M. There's kind of like the red one's like a schemer. Right. The green one is like smart and sassy. The green one's the temptress. That's right. (laughs) It's always the green one that's pushing boundaries there. And (laughs) who picks up on this a lot but the candy lovers at Fox News? Tucker Carlson has this years long, I don't want to say feud with M&Ms. It hasn't really been acknowledged by them until just this week where he's always inveighing against M&Ms either being too sexy or not sexy enough. The temptress M&M, as you called her, the green M&M, previously, I think maybe she had kind of a smoldery voice or something. She wore heels. Recently, they put her back in sneakers, better arch support. Not cool in Tucker's books. He complained that this was from last year, quote, M&M's will never be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous until the moment when you wouldn't want to have a drink with any of them. Now, okay, Tucker, these aren't. (laughs) These aren't real. And it went further recently. They put the brown M&M from stilettos into like more blocky pump heels and still heels, but a little bit more walkable. And it goes, the M&M got her boots back and is apparently a lesbian now, maybe. I will say, I don't mean to defend Tucker, but M&M's was really on one with this. I think they got a little deep into the lore. <laughs> That like, this is maybe, let's save it for your fanfiction.net account. Oh, yeah. To be clear, like a lot of candies have tried to keep up with the times, had tried to see what they could do with social messaging. There was like Hershey's had like a feminist thing and it was like Hershey or maybe it was emphasizing the herb. I frankly don't remember. They're always kind of looking for some easy headlines. I get that. So is Fox News. But this is something that Fox has run with for ages. This real, honestly, burning fury about whether or not they want to have sex with an M&M. And well, to me, this doesn't really, they're not serious about this, right? I don't think Tucker Carlson actually wants to sleep with an M&M, but this is sort of a ridiculous and memeable way for Fox hosts to express concern that gender is going too far. Either they're slut shaming the green M&M or they're complaining about non-binary people, which is something Greg Gutfeld did this week. He complained, what message does it send to children when you devour these little non-binary bonbons, right? So <laughs> they're doing this thing where they're implying that like every lifestyle outside of maybe a female M&M being a housewife or whatever is a deviation, right? It's a political choice. And Okay, it's ridiculous. They know it's ridiculous. But to me, I think it's sort of an extension of regular Fox News bigotry, where they would complain that, oh, these girls aren't wearing enough clothing anymore. Or on the other hand, oh, I don't want to sleep with these androgynous pink haired college students anymore. But because it's an M&M and it's inherently ridiculous, it's the fun and easy, more passable way of complaining about people that they don't really like. I think that's right. It's basically sort of a jokey way for them to use their do their usual shtick about like the gender chaos they see out there. Now, under pressure, under this pressure from Fox News, Eminem responded on Monday. Kelly, what, can you read the first paragraph here in this statement? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try and do my best solemn spokeswoman voice. 
America, let's talk. In the past year, we've made some changes to our beloved spokes candies. We weren't sure if anyone would even notice, and we definitely didn't think it would break the internet. But now we get it. Even a candy's shoes can be polarizing, which was the last thing M&Ms wanted since we're all about bringing people together. So this is part of their announcement that they're pulling temporarily. They're taking the spokes candies off air and replacing them with Maya Rudolph of SNL fame. Now, okay, I'm even hesitant to like treat this seriously. My conspiracy theory right now is this is part of a publicity stunt, just kind of like when, if you remember a couple years ago, Planters Peanuts like said they were killing off Mr. Yes, Peanut. Yes, I love <laughs> that. I love that. They killed off Mr. <laughs> Peanut and replaced him with Baby Nut. People were so mad about that, but like, I love a good spectacle. I think Mr. Peanut got in a car crash, I believe. <laughs> dark actually yeah i think much like murdering mr peanut and i think like reincarnating him during a super bowl commercial this is my theory right they're riding on a ridiculous public relations high my rudolph is going to come out and like bring back a green m&m and even higher stiletto heels and it's going to be a win for feminism and the left i don't know i'm not really inclined to give either party a lot of credit here but like you said we can just sort of admire the spectacle and admire how dumb this really all is this really is our hypermedia ecosystem i mean it really is something well thank you for digging into this because i have been curious about tucker's kind of ongoing obsession with the m&ms and i guess m&ms is kind of into it now yeah absolutely listen any publicity is good publicity and i frankly can't wait to see what happens next in the saga of the purple m&m i think pulling hijinks with the red m&m not sure just can't wait to see what's delivered onto my screen all right well speaking of right-wing media drama steven crowder the youtube YouTuber seems to have maybe kind of stepped in it. What's going on there? This is the kind of right-wing drama that I just absolutely love, where we get kind of a glimpse inside the industry. We get some ideological allies turning on one another, and we find out just how much money goes into this whole thing. So Steven Crowder, folks may remember, he's like a big guy. He does stunts. He likes to wear a dress and get in scrapes but he's also i should say as a child he was the voice of one of the characters on arthur the pbs show which character the brain no way no way wow that's the rabbit i believe no i believe buster was a rabbit the brain i don't want to say was an anteater he's not an anteater he's like he seems like he's just a dude <laughs> <laughs> so that was steven crowder's claim to fame <laughs> Stephen Crowder, folks may not be aware, but he has a very successful YouTube operation and just kind of a generally like a live streaming show where he sits in front of a desk and talks a lot. And he has a lot of devoted fans. And up until the end of last year, he was with Glenn Beck's outfit, The Blaze. And so he left The Blaze and cut to this week when he said, I guys, I'm turning on conservative media what he calls big con they enslave their talent and this is just they're in bed with big tech and all this stuff to prove it here's a contract offer i received when i was leaving the blaze and he doesn't name the company but it's i'll just cut to the chase it's the daily wire it's ben shapiro's outfit it's extremely transparent like he's like i won't say what but if you were to give the initials of dw he didn't do that but it was it was so so clear yes. yeah i think he says like let's just refer to them as dw <laughs> <laughs> no, that's too obvious. The D-Wire. No, the Daily W. So he claims that in roughly August or September of 2022, when he's leaving the blaze, he's fielding offers of where he'll go next. And he gets an offer from this company, from the Daily Wire. And it, the contract is... 
upset him a lot. And there were a couple aspects to it. One, and it's important to note he would be a contractor here. So with the amount he would get paid would cover basically his entire company. But he was upset that if he didn't deliver enough episodes, his pay would be reduced as such, which doesn't strike me as that crazy. The big one, though, was that if he was kicked off of various platforms, that his pay would be reduced. And so if he got kicked off of YouTube, for example, he would see a 20% cut in the deal. And so he was claiming that the Daily Wire is doing big tech's bidding here by not supporting him if he gets booted from Apple Podcasts or Twitter, etc. Okay, this is not to support any of their content, but I actually do think this is an interesting provision. It shows that these conservative media outlets are very aware that they're really flirting with bands and they this is almost like their liability insurance right they don't want to bring on a crowder for i think maybe we'll get into what they were offering him they don't want to pay him that much money if he's gonna get caught and have to go to rumble and get one eighteenth of the viewership they're sort of putting it on him to behave himself and it's interesting to see him be like no i don't think that's actually feasible right so he puts this out and it is also i should say a very transparent effort to build his own email list which supposedly he lost when he left the blaze because he's saying oh go to big con stop big con.com and then i was like oh okay this is where all the revelations will be but it just says sign up for our fight (laughs) give us your email just i think a larger effort to build his own media company because he's saying if you are a pundit like me who's been trapped under these onerous conditions come to crowder media so people pretty quickly figured out this was the daily wire the one person who did not figure it out was Daily Wire star Jordan Peterson who tweeted, yeah, they got to stop Big Con. Go Steven Crowder. And then it seems as though someone said, hey, Jordan, in between trying on the world's ugliest suit, can you delete that tweet? Uh, whoops. So he did. And, and censored. Yeah, exactly. So the Daily Wire responds, not through Ben Shapiro, who's sort of the face of Daily Wire, but through Jeremy Boring. And the way to describe Jeremy Boring is, if people saw Elvis, Jeremy Boring is sort of the Colonel Tom to Ben Shapiro's Elvis. He's kind of the money man. He's the guy getting the deals done. And so he comes out in this very, like, the video, I will say, did not dissuade me from believing that the Daily Wire is sort of the corporate Borg of conservative media, either in this this kind of stately, vaguely, we work light office. And he's just, Jeremy Boring says, look, it's an hour long video, I should say. I mean, (laughs) this is why YouTube invented the thing where you can speed up the video. To be clear, I think this is only for us who want to watch an hour of right wing contract disputes. There's nobody else who would have watched this there was no fun for will i mean this was my fun that night when that dropped i was like clear my schedule so jeremy boring's argument is that this contract is pretty reasonable actually and that he then goes through each part of it but the big revelation from that video was that stephen crowder was being offered 50 million dollars for four years in this deal so 12.5 million a year and that that was their initial offer so you have to kind of think that it probably would have been bigger if that was the daily wire's first offer yeah absolutely and these numbers are astounding Right. And it really does speak to how much people can get out of the right wing media ecosystem just by doing kind of the bare minimum. Because if you look at the provisions of this contract, Crowder only needed to work like four days a week. He was going to. Yes. (laughs) produced less than 200 episodes over that four year thing. And he called it, quote, a slave contract, which is just. Yes. His words were, yeah, he said a slave contract. He said slave several times. And yeah, the provisions of contract where he had to show up four days a week, got an additional month off of vacation (laughs) and like all this stuff. And now Crowder's argument is that, yes, it is $12.5 million a year, but I also have to pay my employees. No. (laughs) Yeah, you might think it's a good deal, but these people don't work for free. But you also like Stephen Crowder's show is sitting in front of a desk and talking. I mean, it's not like 
auto manufacturing. This is not a capital intensive business. So this idea that he would just be left with a real meager sum after that. So then Jeremy Boring drops a second bomb, which is that Crowder was like, get out of here, man. I want 30 million a year. So more than twice as much as they were offering him. And then the negotiations broke down from there. So Kelly, what's your take on this? So, okay. I'm wondering if there was any figure that Crowder actually would have taken, or if this was just, I'm sure he makes plenty of money as it is right now. He's not struggling. If this was actually just kind of an effort to build up his own stardom, his own email newsletter, as you point out, because it does sound like he was kind of scheming against them a lot of the time. He was recording calls when he was in these negotiations. Yeah. So this is the big revelation, right? Is that I say this pretty often here, but like one of the great pleasures of this field in a way that you don't get covering, I think, like Congress or finance stuff is that everyone is constantly recording one another. I mean, we've talked before about Milo Yiannopoulos' hard drive full of secret recordings and all this. And in this case, Steven Crowder comes out in his response to Jeremy Boring. He says, well, guess what? I was recording you. (laughs) And he says, everyone made fun of me for saying these are slave wages. Well, here's a recording of Jeremy Boring talking about the contract and saying that people much lower in the hierarchy than Steven Crowder would be paid, quote, slave wages according to Jeremy Boring. Now, I think in another situation, Steven Crowder would say, well, I think that's great. This idea that Steven Crowder is like the founding member of the Nashville DSA chapter. He's like suddenly like, wait, a contract can be exploitative. (laughs) Steven Crowder, welcome to the resistance. It really is just incredible. So just wrapping this up. So Steven Crowder, Jeremy Boring kind of shot back at him and said, well, you pretend to be this guy who's like this really independent guy, but really you're paid by billionaires, just like everyone else in this field is. And then Steven Crowder went on Tim Pool. You know, we got to get Tim Pool in on this somehow. And he, I watched some of this and he's saying, look, I don't like these terms of this contract because like what we might be censored over. And Tim Pool says, well, what does YouTube censor you on? And Crowder says, well, we had this character we used to do a lot called Transgender Bane, like Bane (laughs) from Batman. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, folks, that this is the kind of groundbreaking stuff that's being censored. Yeah. I mean, listen, if it means giving up $50 million to not be able to do Transgender Bane, it's nice to know that this man has principles. (laughs) So I just want to hit on one kind of side issue here. So watching this Tim Pool thing, fascinating thing about Tim Pool is he's got this kind of crony named Luke Rudkowski, who's sort of a less successful Tim Pool. He's kind of one of these guys who came up filming protests and stuff. And Luke's always running little side hustles. And he's always like, I got a new website. And it's like a shirt that says, like, make America Florida again, stuff like that. And I guess Tim lets him kind of hawk this stuff. So on this episode, this Crowder episode, Luke goes, you got to go to my new website. I'm the real OG.com. We got some great products there. And so I was wondering, you got to have a schemer in the gang is what I'm saying. So I went to I'm the real OG.com and Luke is now selling a certificate of recognition for not getting vaccinated. <laughs> so you put in your name and you get, it's not clear to me that it's framed, but you get this thing that says Kelly has dis- displayed high critical thinking for not falling for a multi-billion dollar PSYOP. Whatever. Now, hang on. Are these the people who claim that millennials just want participation trophies? <laughs> That's a great point. Now, Kelly, and I will say, I don't think this is framed. Since we're talking so much about the money going on in conservative media, what do you think this piece of paper will cost you? What do I think it's going to cost? No frame. I mean, so, I mean, this can't cost them more than like 35 cents to make. I'm going to say like, what kind of markup are we talking about? I'm going to put this at $25. Oh, boy. You got to get your money up because... It's a cool 35 bucks for 
for this sheet of paper. <laughs> so getting back to Crowder, the other thing to add about this is he has really alienated all of his buddies by the secret recording thing. People hate when they get secretly recorded on the right. And so we'll see what remains for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this sounds like a rich well of drama, and I'm certainly not going to be extricating myself anytime soon. <laughs> all right, Will, who is coming on as our guest this week? All right. There's one name that everyone is talking about in Washington, D.C., and indeed across the country. And that man's name is George Santos. So this week, to break down the mysterious, talented Mr. Ripley of Congress, we've got <laughs> Tina Wynn. She's a national correspondent and co-founder at Puck, the very buzzy media news site that I love to read and that we've talked about here on the pod. She's the co-author of their new Best in the Brightest newsletter. And she's also, I think, a one of our nation's leading George Santos experts. So I'm excited to break down everything Santos with her. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Tina Wynn. She's a national correspondent and co-founder at the media website Puck. Tina covers politics. She covers a lot of right-wing guys, right-wing extremists and regular old Republicans and the whole gamut. Congress, really everything going on. She's also the co-author of their new politics newsletter, Best and the Brightest. And I wanted to bring Tina in here today to talk about the saga of the man we know as George Santos, but to some of his friends is named Anthony DeVolder, a man of many names and many alleged schemes. Tina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I've been like following you for years now. And I think we were talking back in like we were talking at the very beginning of this MAGA madness, so I'm so happy we we're finally able to do this. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there are a lot of DMs maybe from 2017, 2016, saying, like, are you seeing this? Is this person really doing this? So, Tina, catch us up to speed. What is the latest on George Santos? Oh, boy. Last week, I believe, was when we all discovered alias number three, which was Brazilian drag queen Kitara Ravash. which he denied repeatedly. And then more evidence came out of him actually being a Brazilian drag queen, including this amazing video of him at a gay pride parade talking about all the clubs that he frequented. And now he's finally admitting, okay, fine. Yes, I was Kitara Ravash, but I never performed in drag. I just liked dressing up and everyone's like, actually, no, you performed in drag. (laughs) Oh God, the best part that I've seen so far is someone dug up a Wikipedia page that he a person under one of his aliases, Anthony DeVolder, I think? DeVolder, yes. DeVolder, yes. He was editing a page on Anthony DeVolder about competing as Kitara Ravash and winning all of these prizes. So now I'm like, all right, who are you pretending to be? Are you a person who just like to dress as a woman? Are you an actual competing drag queen? He's like 
The way that a source of mine who's in contact with his office put it was that he just keeps adjusting himself to whoever it is he's talking to and just keeps putting lie on lie on lie on top of each other. So it seems compulsive at this point, except for the part where everyone's wondering where he got all of this money to run his campaign. Like if he were just a compulsive liar, that's one thing, but he's a compulsive liar with mystery money. That's totally different. Now, what's so frustrating to me is that this is actually like the first cool thing we've seen him do. It's like, hell yeah, you want to do drag at a pride parade? Awesome. But it's also like one of the things that he's most adamant about denying. But let's get into that money a little bit because this guy's come out of nowhere, right? No political experience, known, I think, in a probably in a group chat complaining about his various scams. What are we starting to learn about his campaign financing? Honestly, I haven't been too caught up on that part. But from my understanding, there are a lot of questions over who's been handling his money, where it came from, how he got that money. Last I checked, there was an allegation that it may have involved a Russian oligarch. That's the thing that I think is preventing him most from being fully accepted as a compulsive liar within the Republican Party, because honestly, they'll take anyone these days. But if he can come up with a good answer that is believable about where this money has come from, the MAGA makeover he's trying to attempt right now is never going to happen. It is fascinating because there does seem to be, there's all these kind of like penny ante scams, many of them just really vile in terms of he allegedly sold this money meant to, for surgery for a veteran, a homeless veteran's dog. The patch up in New York has been doing a great job reporting on these, the smaller scams, like saying to the an old woman, hey, this is a rough neighborhood, you better give me your jewels. <laughs> oh, bye. Yeah, it is indeed a rough neighborhood. There's a guy tricking old ladies. <laughs> I love the one where he stole his roommate's Burberry scarf and wore it to the January 6th pre-game <laughs> rally. The roommate had like an interview or an article where he said, George Santos is he's this very deceptive man. Yes, he stole my Burberry scarf, but the problems go much deeper than that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a pretty grave sin. We should talk more about the kind of the big sack of money here. But what is the why does he love running these? Now, obviously, these are all allegations right now. But like, what is up with all the little scams? Why does he love them so much? I wish I knew. Like, that's the level of psychology that I completely like am hands off. I don't know the psychology of like someone who feels the need to keep lying and lying and scamming and lying and scamming and lying. I mean, just look at the results that he's trying to put forth in Congress right now, which is I need to survive as long as humanly possible so I can continue to scam more. So you mentioned whether or not he's going to be welcomed into the Republican caucus. I mean, it sort of seems like they Kevin McCarthy made a game time decision when he was trying to get the speakership to say, all right, well, George Santos, you're sticking with me for now. So we're going to table this issue till I get voted in. But now, I mean, there's I believe there's an ethics investigation. I mean, how are members reacting to this guy? The normal members are just pretending he doesn't exist and being like, that's someone else's problem. We're going to let the ethics committee do its work if it's something like we're not going to comment at all until it comes up and who knows what's going to happen within that time frame like if just knowing the temperature of the conservative movement as i do now the only way that they're really going to let go of him is if one he took money from a source that's like beyond the pale for them or two it turns out that he is on the wrong side of them on certain cultural issues, such as like trans rights or whatever. If he hadn't had all of that come out about him, I think he could have gotten away as like a backbencher rhino who could just like pop up and do like 
vote a specific way for McCarthy, maybe vote a little bit MAGA. He can't really place himself in the camp now of being either fully Republican or fully MAGA. Like, you can't, like, you have to really commit yourself to voting on the America first Trump agenda forever. And if that pisses off people in the more moderate part of the caucus, then he loses their support. And I don't know, one of the things that kind of like fascinates me about him is how dedicated he is to to playing people off of each other. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, right? I mean, we're talking about this, obviously, at a national level, but he represents New Yorkers like me. And so I'm wondering, like, does he actually have who are the George Santos fans? Like, are there actually people who are like, hell yeah, this guy is awesome? I don't think so. Like, I think people really liked him when he seemed to be moderate with like dashes of MAGA because he acknowledged a couple of Trump, like prominent issues within MAGAism, border security, funding Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. But during that specific election cycle, he didn't go full election truther. I mean, he did so after January 6th, but leading up to the election, he kind of dialed himself back and presented himself as like the future of the Republican Party. Yay, Brazilian, yada, yada, yada. But like if he was trying to fly under the radar, he could have been able to do that. But right now, he's the biggest punchline in American politics right now. (laughs) I mean, one interesting aspect is that I think Santos is leaning into here, particularly his staff, I think is sort of the trolling aspect of it. I mean, I think after the first couple weeks of like is Santos with the sweater and getting hounded by reporters and all this. Now he's like, yeah, I am a grifter and I'm in Congress. Deal with it. And so we talked about this on the podcast that he hired Vish Burra, the former head of the Joey Salads YouTuber campaign for Congress. And here in the Puck newsletter, Best and the Brightest, just earlier this week, there was an article about Vish Burra, who is just posting Instagram stories of himself answering calls from angry Santos constituents and just laughing about it and saying just like, these are some crazy guys. They sure don't like that George Santos is their representative. (laughs) I guess there is sort of a Trump era trolling to it where essentially they're saying deal with it. And then on Tuesday, Santos promised reporters a big surprise at his office and he set out some coffee, which nice enough, but it recalled to me Another famous pathological liar that we've dealt with here, Jacob Wool, who would put out coffee and donuts for reporters. What do you make of this whole thing? I think this is one of his new personalities. Like in Brazil, if you want to ingratiate yourself among like the LGBT community, you start doing grad shows. If you're trying to survive in Congress, you try to slip on the personality of a MAGA troll. And to his strategic credit, I hate putting it that way, he hired like Vishbura is a pretty well-known figure within like MAGA media, like MAGA operative circles. He's former Bannon acolyte. He used to work for Matt Gates. He kind of attached himself to Carl Palladino, who ran for Congress in upstate New York and lost in the primaries. But Vish himself is absolutely as MAGA as they come. The question is, though, like within Santos's office, I've heard that there has actually been power struggles between him and other staffers whose entire deal was like, all right, we're just going to put our heads down and hope this passes over. It's one thing for Vishbura to go around being like, la, 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 I'm a troll. I'm going to protect George Santos and for George Santos to actually back that up. Because if Santos suddenly turns around and starts voting for McCarthy, if McCarthy presents him with a better deal than staying with the MAGA caucus, that makes Vish kind of look like an idiot. I I was going to say that ship may have sailed, I think, on that (laughs) issue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have to say, he's probably, Vishbura probably has the best idea out of anyone in that office, which is, how do I get my Instagram cloud up before the indictments come raining? 
raining down on George Santos. I have to say, in the past, I've been generally positive about George Santos. I saw him as an everyman character for our time in sort of a, a lovable rascal. But the whole stealing money from the veteran's dog thing, I'm going to have to withdraw my approval. What do you think is the biggest problem facing George Santos right now? Ooh, I think it would be whether the people in Congress who actually are diehard real MAGA, the type of people who were in the quote-unquote Taliban 20 and successfully held up the people within the so-called Taliban 20 who held up McCarthy's speakership bid. If he can fully gain their approval, they will go to bat for him. If he can't, they will hang him out to dry. Like, they don't even like him that much. One person who's who's really familiar with the inner workings of that group told me that they consider him a quote-unquote tryhard. That's so funny that that's the insult that sticks. It's not jewel thief. It's not culpable in killing a dog. It's a tryhard. It's the gunner in law school. I'm really glad you bring up this Taliban 20 group because where the dust has settled over the McCarthy vote. And you have a really interesting piece about Marjorie Taylor Greene's relationship with this group. Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, voted with McCarthy. McCarthy kind of breaking from Lauren Boebert in that set. Can you tell us like where her relationship stands with these representatives who are until very recently her peers? They are still her peers, but MTG is her own center of gravity and her own center of popularity. Like she has established herself as a really savvy political player within Congress who's really good at speaking MAGA, who has the love of Donald Trump, who honestly, like I've been to a couple of events where someone will mention MTG's name and the crowd will go absolutely apeshit. Pardon my language, but they do. Like even more than, say, Bobert or Trump himself sometimes. Like she is media savvy. She is congenial. She is super nice. Like that was something that people in Congress were surprised by when she first came in. Like especially leadership, especially like rank and file Republicans. She is tolerable and presentable and the rest of the Taliban 20 are not really. So she is sort of the avatar of the MAGA movement within Congress right now and she can speak that language well. And so they can't really afford to alienate her. And Matt Gates personally just really, really likes, really, really likes her. So there's absolutely no way that she's going to you know, tank that relationship anytime soon. She's sort of, I don't know, I guess she would be like the popular cheerleader in MAGA who everyone has to play nice with because otherwise they're going to get shanked. Unless you're like Lauren (laughs) Boebert and you have this real mean girls like fight between the two of them that, oh God, that Daily Beast report of the two of them screaming in the bathroom. Y'all did good in nailing that. That was amazing. Yeah, that was our colleagues. Ursula Prano, Zach Patrizzo landed that one. What Tina's referring to here, of course, is this article that amid the Kevin McCarthy fight, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene really got into it in the women's restroom, one of them on the hill. Stars, mm. they're just like us. yeah the two of them apparently like absolutely loathe each other and it's been something i've been hearing for i don't know ever since the two of them broke onto the national scene the narcissism of small differences and then like you started seeing that break out in the lead up to the speaker election where i mean i think it's one thing if marjorie taylor green and lauren bobert had a disagreement on who to vote for and mtg throws in with kevin lauren bobert says i'll you know what, I'll vote for Kevin if he gives me, if he gives us the motion to vacate rule, meaning that if I don't like him, I could like stand up and detonate the suicide vest he put on and call a vote for him to 
be outed as speaker. Both ways would get the MAGA agenda a priority in the upcoming Congress. However, it got super personal when the two of them started attacking each other in the press with like Bobert making fun of her Jewish space lasers comment during a Turning Point event and then Margie Taylor Greene tweeting about how Bobert's a sore loser. Like, that's just personal. That comes from a deeply, deeply personal place, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's Mean Girls on the Hill. It's kind of fascinating to watch. Tina, you are also, you've been following the Daily Wire for a while. You've done reporting in the past on where exactly they get their money from. And earlier on this podcast, we were talking about this Crowder Daily Wire drama. And I was wondering if you had any insight into the money that's swirling around and what you make of this deal. Oh my God. It's like the first time I've been telling people this for ages and they didn't particularly believe me until now. I was like, look, there is so much money being made in conservative media, in conservative businesses. And people were like, oh my God, no, it looks janky as hell. And then all of a sudden this contract comes out saying Steven Crowder gets $50 million over four years in order to produce his show for the Daily Wire. And that was just the basis of the negotiations. It could have gone up. And I think one of the numbers being thrown around, I think by Candace Owens, one of the Daily Wire's personalities, was it could have gone up to 120 million. And yeah, frankly, the Daily Wire can make that money, especially if they bring Steven Crowder on board. <laughs> but the interesting thing that I'm writing about right now is there's this real ideological argument breaking out over what Crowder's concerns were versus what the Daily Wire's business MO is, which is Crowder does not believe that profit should be the primary motive of a conservative media outlet or a conservative business because his main concern was in the contract, the Daily Wire was saying, hey, if you get demonetized on YouTube, your salary and your compensation will be cut by whatever amount that we lost from that revenue stream. And he was like, no, 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 no. You are falling prey to what big tech is trying to do to us, which is demonetize us, cut off our communication channels, and try to be an enemy to conservatism. The way that Crowder went about making that point, I think, has turned a lot of people off of him. And I don't think he's going to have good business relationships going forward. For people who haven't been following, one of the things he did in order to attack the Daily Wire was secretly record a conversation with the Wire CEO, Jeremy Boring, cut it up selectively, aired it on a show and made it out to be like, oh, Jeremy Boring's a wage slave. So within conservative money circles, they're like, do we really want to work with this guy if you think that he's going to go nuclear on us if he doesn't like anything we're proposing? It's sort of a tacky move releasing the secret recording. I keep all my secret recordings for when I really need them. <laughs> I think that's a great point. Tina. It makes him look like a loose cannon. For sure. And The Wire's counter argument is, look, we're a for-profit business. We don't have a nonprofit mentality. We don't have donors that we need to bend to. They pulled in about $180 million in revenue last year. And if you do a like 7x multiple, which I think is what similar companies that aren't conservative have valued themselves at, that company is worth well over a billion dollars at this point. So, and that is because they just wants to create this business that exists separately off of the like online channels that 
conservative media grew on. Like it's easy to enter, it's easy to become an influencer online, even if you're ideological, because all of these tools you can access for free. You got like Instagram, you can go on YouTube for free. You can hop on Twitter for a free account. You can get a lot of influence rather quickly and build this giant audience. But their influence is directly related to whether the platform will have them on. So the Daily Wire's proposition is, all right, we're going to build our own channel, our own distribution networks. We're going to use YouTube and Facebook and whatever as a way to funnel users into our backend and tell them, all right, in case we get canceled here subscribe to the Daily Wire and hear all of our stuff directly from us. And that's been pretty successful to them so far. I believe they're about to get a million paid subscribers. So the way that someone put it to me who knows both of them is this is one of those cases where ideology is running straight head on into commerce. And I don't know which one of them is going to win. But the thing is, is that in order to make money, they are getting it from people who believe so strongly in a political cause that they will throw money at it. And that's the value they get. You throw money at a product and you believe and you trust that they're going to be ideologically in your interests. If the Daily Wire is making money by having to play nice with big tech, that's going to be a problem for a lot of people. Certainly, this is a sort of clash of the titans that we'll continue to be watching, particularly as Stephen Crowder seems to be building up his own media would-be empire himself. Okay, we've been joined by... Tina Wynn. She's a national correspondent and a co-founder of Puck. She covers the right. So if you like Fever Dreams, I think you should follow her on Twitter at Tina underscore Wynn. There's all kinds of similar content and reporting. And I think some great insights as well into conservative media, conservative politics, and all the money that surrounds it. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Thanks for having me. All right. And now for our weekly recurring segment, Fresh Hell. Will, what is the worst thing you've seen on Facebook in the past seven days? This is a great one. I mean, it's the Proud Boys rule book. Now, folks may remember the Proud Boys. They're the rowdy lads who tried to overthrow the government. They've got a lot of rules. And ever since the Proud Boys kind of burst onto the national scene in roughly 2016, I've been fascinated by the Proud Boys rules because a lot of these groups, they don't have such colorful rules. They used to ban their members from wearing flip-flops. They had all these various rules. They used to say black members couldn't talk about racism as an issue. I've gotten in arguments with Gavin McGinnis on Twitter about the Proud Boys rules that he would have to then go back and update after I was like, well, you're clearly lying about what the rules are, whatever. So now the top Proud Boys leadership is currently on trial over January 6th. And so this manual that was seized as part of the raids made it into the court record. And this the manual is like a little out of date. I would peg it. I, it looks like it was made in roughly 2018 or 2019 because there's some references to stuff that they don't really do anymore. But it is really remarkable, these rules, because they get into it. I mean, Kelly, what was your take on this? Well, I mean, well, philosophically, right, I think the Proud Boys sort of appeal to men who feel a little bit lost, who are looking for some spiritual leadership. I'm not really sure that's the exact. Yeah, I think that's right. Right. And so, listen, a lot of right-leaning men love the Jordan Peterson 12 Rules for Life, which is equally garbage, but a little bit more palatable. This is the Proud Boys Rules for Life. And listen, if you wanted to impose some strict regulations on your life, this has it. I think maybe the standout line for me, which a lot of people are pulling already, is it's called the no wanks policy. And I'm just going to read it and hope that HR doesn't come after me. Quote, a proud boy may not ejaculate alone more often than once every 30 days. That means he must abstain from pornography during that time. And if he needs to ejaculate, it must be within one yard of a woman 
with her consent, which is a nice touch. The woman may not be a prostitute. This is our religion, (laughs) and our Pope is the religion's founder, Dante Nero. Men who are away from their wives for extended periods of time has, this a typo, requested video conferencing as a way around (laughs) the one-yard rule. This is not allowed. A couple notes on that. So the gentleman mentioned there, Dante Nero, is a friend of Gavin McGinnis's who would, if folks have listened to the This American Life episode about the Proud Boys, who would later leave the club after he realized they were all racist. So, I mean, the one that is just fascinating to me is that like we're really getting like into some very intense like canon law here about like, well, what about Zoom? And then, you know, <laughs> the elders, oh, that's not allowed. Yeah, you're right that this does seem like kind of an artifact from an older iteration of the Proud Boys because we've touched on it in this podcast before. They are sort of undergoing internal turmoil right now. Their last leader, Enrique Tarrio, he's a bit on the outs. People rightly suspect him to be a federal informant and there are breakaway sects of the Proud Boys right now. This is sort of a more consolidated, centrally managed Proud Boys. But it's really interesting that this is the level of control that they feel like they have to have over their membership. And it also speaks to these absolute paranoias about pornography making men weak or that if men are not constantly having sex with women or near them, then it's somehow emasculating them. And in this case, clearly calling your wife on the phone is also emasculating. (laughs) That's a great point. I mean, I've written about the sort of the post-January 6th civil war that the Proud Boys have faced, where there are kind of two visions of the club, one of which is very centrally organized and one of which is essentially like autonomous chapters that exist independent of one another. But you read this manual and it's very like, okay, these are the exact words you will say at this one moment. Like, for example, members they achieve their second degree ranking by being punched while naming breakfast cereals. Now, the argument here is that this means you can keep your head in a fight. So it says, while the prospect recites the cereals, five Proud Boys must pound him. <laughs> Shots to the head and below the belt are discouraged, but not against the rules. <laughs> the Proud Boy receiving his licks is not meant to fight back, though doing so does not negate his second degree. So listen, like you said, this is going to show that they can hold their own in a fight, that they can keep a clear head. We've seen videos of this initiation ceremony, and it would embarrass a run-of-the-mill frat party. There's a great video of Jason Kessler. He's the guy who organized the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, getting inducted into the Proud Boys this way. And he's getting like tapped in the belly while he giggles and goes, he's Cinnamon Toast Crunch or whatever. So they have all these formalities. How much these things actually prove that they are soldiers of the West, I think is a bit up for debate. But I'm glad that you bring up this degrees element, right? That there are different degrees of being a Proud Boy. Because this is something that Proud Boys have kind of had down in the past, right, that they have different levels of their membership. And this actually confirms something that Proud Boys have outright lied about before, this existence of a fourth degree Proud Boy, which it says right in the document. It says that a fourth degree Proud Boy is someone who is, quote, engaged in major conflict for the cause that involves being arrested, which they say is not encouraged, or to get into a serious physical fight. I mean, listen, being violent is literally here baked into the Proud Boys code of conduct. It's part of the DNA of this organization. And they've tried to disavow that sometimes they've lied and denied that the fourth degree Proud Boy status exists. Well, here it is right on paper. It's in court record now. It is a very interesting look. This is on Twitter. If folks want to check out the whole document. I thought it was a very interesting look at sort of an era of the Proud Boys. And it does show that these guys love to lie about their rules because <laughs> they lied about all this stuff. And so look, they missed one of the rules, which is you must be a federal informant. <laughs> So we will certainly be keeping an eye on this trial and we'll see if any more spicy documents spill out. All right. Fever Dreams listeners, if you want to pledge your loyalty, we will shout at you while you list five (laughs) hot dog condiments. That's allowed too. (laughs) Oh, relish. 
On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.